Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're taking our time here through the book of Thessalonians. And we titled the message this morning, Strength for the Battle. Strength for the Battle. We all recognize that as believers, as we walk with Christ, we all go through different series of battles as Christians. How many of us can recognize that and say amen to that? We go through different battles, but we don't go through battles alone. We have been given the spiritual resource, we've been given the armor of God, we've been given the word of God to give us strength through every battle. And here what Paul is doing is he's giving now thanks to God in this section that we're studying. In regards to the church here in Thessalonica, this church with a godly testimony. And what took place here is this, this was a church that not only had a godly testimony, but for three reasons he thanks God for them. Number one, because they received the word of God. And I want you to take note of these, that you would remember this, because this is a church that is facing spiritual battles. This is a church that is going through spiritual warfare. This is a church undergoing opposition, persecution, rejection. And he tells them, I'm thanking God for you. They were a church with a godly testimony. They were a church with a godly witness. And the first reason why he thanks God for them is because they received the word of God with their mind, verse 13, with their heart, they welcomed it into their hearts. And it was effectively working in them. We looked at verse 13 last week with detail. The word of God that we receive with our ears, with our heart, we welcome it. And it effectively works in us. What does the word of God do for us? It's the same word that gives us salvation. It enables us to live for Christ, to endure suffering for his sake. But it also gives us strength so that we can have victory. We're not only looking to endure the battle, we're looking to have victory in the battle. And the word of God does that for us. So they received the word of God and they were responsive. Pay attention to that. They were responsive. Today you're going to receive the word of God, I pray, that you're responsive. As a Christian, as a believer, maybe you've come in today and you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, well, you have an opportunity to respond. And not only would you respond at the end of the service to that invitation, but also maybe you respond as a Christian right there in the pew, in, the, in your seat, to the very thing that God's speaking to you about, that you would be responsive. In fact, think about a physical body when it needs medical attention. It, it is either responsive or not responsive. And to be responsive as a Christian means that the life of Christ is flowing through you, that the Word is doing a work in your life, that you are spiritually alive, that you have symptoms to show that you have spiritual life in you. This church had the symptoms that would only show that they had spiritual life in them. They had received it. They were responsive. That an appetite for the Word of God, they welcomed it in their lives. Today, I wonder, are you today showing the symptoms of spiritual life in you? But notice, not only were they a church that had received the word of God, number two, another reason as to why he thanks God for them is that they had honored the saints. You look at verse 14 where it describes that they honored the saints. 
It would say this, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which were in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffer the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. He's saying, you have not only received the word of God, you have been an imitator of the other churches as well. Dear brothers and sisters, beloved, loved ones, I thank God because you honored the saints. This is the proof, this is the reality that they received the word of God with the right heart. It went to work in their lives, and then they became imitators of other Christians. The word of God was working in their lives. And not only did they become imitators of other churches, notice, because they were in the church of God or they were in Christ Jesus, there's a position, a relationship. Notice the word that it describes there in verse 14, in Christ Jesus, those believers in Judea that have a relationship with Christ Jesus as a part of the church of God, you began to imitate them. And how did they imitate them? They imitated them not only in conduct, in faith, but also in suffering. It said the same things that are happening to them are happening to you now. It's a sign that, that you are showing vitals of spiritual life. You're like them, and now you're being persecuted because of your faith by your own people. You're being rejected by your own people. In fact, did you know the Bible says that when we receive Christ, when we choose to walk for Christ Jesus, we will receive, experience rejection even from our own people. Those of your own household will turn their back on you. Your family, your loved ones. Jesus said himself, no, don't think I just came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to draw the line on the sand and either you're with me or you're against me. And, and notice that the, the father is going to be against the, the, the son. Daughters will, will come against mothers. Uh, Daughters-in-laws will be against mothers-in-laws. I mean, that's not hard to imagine, right? But those of your own households are going to be your enemies. Those that you love are going to come against you. Because you're standing for truth. You're standing for a different set of values than the values of the world. And you're going to experience rejection, hostility, pressure from the world. The moment that you start to become comfortable or accepted, applauded by the world, be careful. Because you've become just like them. So you, here he says, are showing every sign of a true believer that is born again because you are just like your brethren in Judea that are suffering from their own people. They're being persecuted from their own countrymen, just like the Judeans, just as others by their own people. Now notice, they not only were honoring the saints, but number three, the reason why he's thankful for them is because they persevered and endured. Three reasons. They received the word of God, they were honoring the saints, and they persevered and endured. Today, maybe you're going through suffering. You're experiencing pain that maybe nobody knows about. Well, notice God is calling you to persevere and to endure. God is calling you to press on, not to give up, not to give in, not to lose faith. That you would press on. We know that in Acts 17, verse 5, the, the Jewish people 
rebelled against the truth. They rebelled against those in Thessalonica that were receiving Christ. Acts 17.5 would say this, but the Jews who were not persuaded, the unbelieving Jews, becoming jealous or envious, took some of their evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set a city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out into the people. The unbelieving Jews brought a mob together and came against the believing Jews, bringing a mob, dragging Jason and people out of their homes. Know this, the word of man is not worth suffering for. But the true message, the pure message that is unadulterated of the gospel is worth it for God. It is worth being rejected by the world because you're standing for truth. And he's saying, you have been suffering. You've imitated in your suffering. And I want you to know this when it comes to suffering. There are times that we suffer because of our own failures. He is not referring to that. There are times that we suffer because we err, because we sin, because we're out of the will of God. He's not referring to that type of suffering, that we would now lean on God for the resource knowing that he's going to help us endure. Yes, we can turn to him, but he's referring to now the believers that were suffering because they stood for truth. In fact, Peter told the Jewish persecuted church, again, something similar in 1 Peter 4.15. Would you note that this morning? 1 Peter 4.15, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. If you're going to suffer, don't suffer because you sin. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't suffer as a busybody in other people's matters. Don't you love the word of God? It is straight. It's black and white. He said, don't suffer because you're in other people's business. Mind your business. How many times have you suffered because you're doing something that God didn't call you to do? You're meddling in other people's business. You're being a busybody. That's, that's none of your business. He said, don't suffer for these things, Christians, through adversity, through opposition, during the last days. In fact, if you're going to suffer, notice, if anyone suffers as a Christian, you're as a believer today, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Because we suffer for standing for truth. Now, he describes two groups of people. First, the group that received the word of God with an open heart. They had a reception for God's truth in their hearts and lives. And then a second group of people that rejected the word of God and had a closed heart, had a hard heart for the truth of God's word. I'm going to ask you this morning as we go to these two different groups and look at the contrast that you would ask yourself, where do you find yourself in? What group do you belong to? Do you belong to the group today that's receiving the truth and allowing it to do the work in your life, or to the group that says, I want nothing to do with that truth. There's only one truth, and Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. And no one comes through the Father except through him. The truth that the Jewish scribes, Pharisees, and people were rejecting was the truth about Jesus. So they opposed the believers with six different forms of opposition. I want you to take note of them, beginning in verse 15. It would say this, who killed both the Lord Jesus. First form of opposition was that they killed Jesus. I want you to remember this, church, he's saying. They killed Jesus. Some of those Jews 
killed our Lord Jesus. They came against him. They rejected him. They, they brought their case against him to be tried and demanded his death by crucifixion. Now you would say it, it was the Romans that crucified Christ. Yes, it was. But the Jewish people rejected him. His own people rejected him and demanded his crucifixion. Now, do not get this wrong. It was our sin that put him on the cross. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, missed the mark, and it was because of our sin that Jesus willingly took the cross, but he was rejected by his own people. So he's saying here, number one, realize those that rejected you first rejected Jesus. Those that rejected you, secondly, notice, their own prophets. Circle that in your Bible. The prophets of the Old Testament, they rejected their warning. The prophets that would speak on behalf of Christ. What about this? John the Baptist, he was a prophet rejected as well. Their own prophets that God sent to them as messengers, as mouthpiece, just as they rejected you, they rejected the prophets. So what is he reminding them? That they are not the first to suffer. And number three, notice as well, those that rejected you, here it explains it as well, verse 15, have persecuted us. They rejected Jesus, they rejected the prophets, they've come against us as well. Remember this, believer today, you are not the first one to suffer. You're in good company. In fact, if, 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 the, if the world rejects us because of Jesus, I'd rather stand with Jesus than with the world. I'd rather stand alone with Christ than be accompanied by the world that is now being given over to the deception of the devil. So remind yourself this. If they've rejected you, they've already rejected Jesus. If they rejected you, they've already rejected the prophets. If you've experienced some opposition, well, notice the unbelieving person, they've already opposed or persecuted us. He's reminding them with serious encouragement that others suffered before them. Today, if you're suffering, notice others have suffered before you. Others are suffering with you. So don't be surprised at the suffering for Christ Jesus. That we would, that we would know that this is a part of us following Christ. In fact, they, he continues and he gives the next form of opposition in regards to the unbelieving Jew. And the fourth reason, notice that he would say there in verse 15, it says, they do not please God. They killed Jesus, rejected their own prophets, persecuted us, but they failed to please God. And number four, this was to be given to them as the assurance that in contrast, they were pleasing the Lord. If those that rejected them did not please God, then that meant that they were truly standing for truth and they were pleasing God. Just remind yourself that when you experience opposition, do not try to be approved, appreciated, accepted by the world when they don't please God. They may reject you, but remember, they're not pleasing God. You're pleasing God. Don't become envious. Don't become jealous of their success. Don't try to be like them. They're not pleasing God. And you are called to please God. 
And then you see it, the fifth reason, they're contrary to all men there in verse 15. What does that mean that they're contrary to all men? That they're hostile to all men. The Jew believed that it was the law that would make them perfect in their own works. They couldn't see that the law was a temporary preparation for God's new covenant of grace. You know what the law tells us? The Ten Commandments tells us that we are guilty. The Ten Commandments reminds us as we read every single one of them that we are guilty, that no one is perfect, and we have not fulfilled them in and of ourselves. We cannot. We have a sinful nature. But the law has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, and then he took our place on the cross for our sin as a perfect Lamb of God, as the sacrifice having fulfilled the law. The Jewish unbelievers could not see that. So they rejected the truth about Jesus. They protected their man-made traditions with a hostile attitude of not receiving the truth of God. They still rebelled. Just think about it. Having the truth right in front of them, it was Jesus himself, and they rebelled. That's what rejection is. In fact, rejection at the core of rejection is rebellion. Rebellion against God's will. So he's reminding them, notice this, be, be reminded of these things. If they rejected Jesus, they'll reject you as well. And today you have to remember that if they rejected Christ, they'll reject you as well. If Christ suffered in, in his perfection, if Christ suffered being the perfect lamb of God, notice we will go through sufferings as well. And it's going to be uncomfortable, but notice we learn to suffer in the will of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says this on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. <laughs> Blessed, oh, how happy it is to be persecuted when you're doing the right thing. <laughs> for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, or, or how happy are those when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not too happy when people say things about me. What happens when they talk about you and they say evil against you and falsely about you? Sometimes we say, oh, I know they said that about me, but you wait and see. I'm going to tell you the truth about them right now. Jesus said, oh, how blessing it is to suffer for righteousness' sake. Oh, what a blessing it is to, to be a part of God's will that the, the world would recognize that and have a reason to identify you as a part of the kingdom of God. In fact, he says, rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is he reminding them right here in verse 15? Remember others are suffering as well. Remember others are suffering. Don't become so shallow through suffering. You know, suffering can be some of the best Lessons that God has used to teach us how to be more like Him. Suffering can become a school. Suffering is the classroom that has profound lessons that otherwise we would not have learned having not gone through them. So He says here, remember others are suffering. You know, it's easy oftentimes when we just think about ourselves when we're suffering, and notice, we become very self-centered. 
Or, or you're suffering and you become very self-absorbed. Or, or I don't can't believe why this is all happening to me. It's all about I. It's all about me. Or what about this? Self-focus. Were you the attention of everything because of the problem that you're going through? Instead of putting your eyes on Jesus Christ, trusting him through the trial. I love what's been said before. One of the best ways to heal your sorrow, one of the best ways to heal your sorrow is to be a blessing to someone else. You're going through something right now. You're going through sorrow. Yes, healing is going to take time. One of the best ways for, to allow God to heal you is to be a blessing to someone else. But the sixth form of opposition that the Jewish believers, unbelievers demonstrated to the believer was this in verse 16. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. They, they, they came against those that would try to extend salvation to the Gentiles as they saw them as unclean people. In fact, the Jewish people were segregated at heart and in life. They had a racist prejudice against the Gentiles. They thought themselves that they were not God's chosen people. They had no way or form of salvation. And when here Paul wanted to preach the good news to them, notice it says, they came and they opposed us because we wanted to preach to this group of people that they did not love. You know what the scribe and the Pharisee did? They came against the Gentile. They opposed or forbid the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They got in the way of what God wanted to do. I want you to be very careful that you pay attention to the attitude of the scribe and the Pharisee. Because we can easily, as believers, become, knowing the truth, they had the truth, some were scribes, others were Pharisees. You know what a scribe does? A scribe has his confidence in his knowledge of the word. A Pharisee has his confidence in his self-righteousness. The scribe, look how much I know. I'm a teacher of the law. I can quote it. I can read it. I can rehearse it. I can say it out loud. I have my confidence in my knowledge. You get in the way of what God wants to do by that. The Pharisee, self-righteous. I'm a holy. Look at the way I live. Look at the way I dress. Look at how I walk. I, I'm only spending time with a selected group of people. The scribe and the Pharisee got in the way of what God wanted to do in the lives of other people. In fact, Jesus called them out because of that. They, he said, you don't go into the kingdom of God. You don't enter, and then you get in the way so that others won't enter either. In Matthew 23, 13, he would say this, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Oh, woe to you, scribe and Pharisee, he would call them out. Hypocrites. You're fake. You're an actor. You think you know a lot in your knowledge, or you're so self-righteous, but you're getting in the way, for you shut the kingdom of heaven against man, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those entering to go in. You see, spiritual warfare comes especially, especially when we want to preach Christ when we want to come to preach salvation, we want to come and evangelize. It's never failed. Then when the church wants to step out and says, we want to do an outreach, we want to share Christ with our city, with our community, maybe with your coworker, with your family member, that the enemy will come and try to silence you. What did he say here? They are forbidding us. They are looking to silence us from preaching, evangelizing unto 
salvation. Because they have their own prejudice, their own traditions in their hearts that will not allow them to see what God wants to do as far as saving other people. Why is it that the world comes against evangelism and outreach and why there's a hostile environment when you say the name of Jesus? Because the world doesn't want Christ and him crucified. When you stand for Christ, expect opposition no matter where it is. These Jewish unbelieving people were more about rules, were more about legalism, were protecting their own traditions, being jealous, instead of opening their heart to what God wanted to do. You know that you can be so protective of what is yours that you stand in the way of what God wants to do? You're so protective. This is mine. This is how it's been. (laughs) Instead of being open for the work that God wants to do. We've heard it many times before. Get out of the way so he can have his way. We need to make sure we're not standing in the way. They were forbidding them. They were standing in the way. You know what God's will is? That all men be saved. They were saying salvation is just for us. No, salvation is that all men would be saved. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.4, who desire all men to be saved. You know what that means? All It means everyone. It means all. That everyone will experience salvation and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God's will. 2 Peter 3.9. Again, Peter speaking to the persecuted church. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. God is not delaying. He's not lagging concerning his promises. As some count slackness. What does he say? He tells them as they're waiting on the Lord, as they're suffering, as they're enduring, just waiting, Lord, when is this going to end? But God's long-suffering. God is so patient. He's patient towards us, the Bible says. He's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will is that you would not perish, but that you would come to repentance, that you would be a part of the group that receives and not rejects. Do you see that here? They were forbidding. They were trying to silence. And notice the outcome of that, of that type of rejection or rebellion or form of opposition and rejection to the truth. It would say this in verse 16, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. I want you to look to your Bible there in verse 16 and circle the word as always. Because rebellion always has the same outcome. Sin of rejecting the truth always has the same outcome. A hard heart that is unwilling to receive always has the same outcome. What is the outcome of rebellion? In fact, he says this, so as always, they're only piling up their sins. They're piling up their sins. Notice what it would say. They're to fill up the measure of their sins. To fill up the measure means they are full, like a cup being full to the brim, to the point of overflowing. (laughs) They filled their lives of sin to the max, at maximum capacity now. And what's interesting about this verse that we ought to know is that, that God will allow a nation, he'll allow a group, he'll allow an individual to accumulate a certain amount of sins before the wrath of his judgment is poured upon them because of sin. He did that in Sodom and Gomorrah. He allowed them to accumulate their sins and then 
poured judgment upon them. He did that in the days of Noah, where he judged the whole earth. But here he's describing a certain event because he says, to fill up the measure of their sins, they're only accumulating their sins to the maximum point that they are to expect only what is deserved to that. And what is that? The wrath that has come upon them to the uttermost. What is it that we are, what you can expect if you reject Christ and reject the truth and accumulate a lifestyle of sin that it's filled your life as you rejected the truth? Notice here, the answer to that, the result of that is one thing, his judgment. The wrath of God is going to fall upon them to the uttermost. This speaks of a specific time, a tribulation period, when the wrath of God will be poured upon the world to the uttermost. After the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit's removed, and God then pours his wrath upon this earth from those that have rejected the truth of his son, Jesus Christ. It's called the tribulation period where the anger or the wrath of God has caught up with them at last. That's what he's saying. The wrath of God has caught up with them at last. Judgment is inevitable. This is what he says about the second group that rejects, that judgment is inevitable. You know what the lesson here in verse 16 is? You cannot win against God. You can think that you're doing your own thing. You can think that you're happy, but inside, you know, you are empty and lost. God will judge sin. He will judge sin to the uttermost. In Galatians 6, 7, it would say, do not be deceived. Don't lie to yourself. Don't, don't pretend you're doing well. Don't lie. Don't be deceived that you're walking in truth if you're living a lie. God will not be mocked. God is not mocked. You can't fool God. You can't lie to God. For whatever a man sows, he, that man, he shall also reap. He's saying this about the unbelieving that they will reap to the uttermost the only inevitable result to a lifestyle of sin that they have chosen for themselves. And I want you to pay attention because they chose that for themselves. For the Son of Man has not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him may be saved. You know when condemnation happens? When a person is unwilling to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. They chose that condemnation for themselves because they were unwilling in the mind. It was hard. The heart was hard. They said, we do not want to accept the truth. John 3.36, Jesus himself said, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. If you believe, you're going to have everlasting life. If you give your life to Jesus, you're born again. You'll have everlasting life. But he who does not believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Think about it. What happens after you die? Do you know? Because if you don't know, then you're living without any kind of certain expectation. Here he says, they have filled up the measure of sins and the wrath of God is inevitable in their lives. Now from verse 17 to verse 20, after having described these two groups, one that received and one that rejected, he then reminds them that he loves them. You have to remember that this group not only rejected Paul, but they were looking to discredit him. They're saying Paul doesn't really love you. Paul is false. He's not teaching the truth. He's, he's a fake. 
He speaks lies. He doesn't love you. That's why he hasn't come back to see you. Did you know when you're going to spirit, through spiritual warfare, you know what the devil likes to do? He likes to come and tell and whisper to you lies. Don't believe the lies. If you're going through pain right now, don't believe the lies. It's from the devil. It's from the enemy. If we're going through spiritual warfare, the very first thing that we should do is anchor ourselves in the truth of the word of God and says, Lord, I'm filling my mind up for what is truth so I recognize the wrong, the false, what is not true. And he gives them three distinctives of someone who lives an effective, fruitful life, a motivation for ministering to other people. This is for everyone. Not just the person in ministry, but the three distinctives that he gives us is this. You must love the people. Write this down. You must understand your enemy, number two, and you must anticipate your Lord. As a reminder, as a way of reminder that I love you, that I'm sincere, that I'm genuine, I want to tell you this. Love the people. This is his example. If you're going through suffering, understand your enemy. If you're going through opposition, if you're experiencing some warfare against your ministry, against the, what the Lord is doing in your life, against your marriage and family, understand your enemy. And finally, you must understand also, or you must have an anticipation of your Lord, always with your mind in eternal things. Don't get caught up in this world. So easy in suffering to get caught up in this life. Do not become caught up in this life as you go through suffering. Notice, number one, you must love the people. He reminds them, but we, brethren, us, us, we, Paul, Silas, Timothy, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. I want to make something clear, Paul says. We, dear brothers and sisters, having been separated for a short time. That word taken away means separated. And he says, we've been separated physically for a short time. The word taken away has to do with the, the word where we receive the word orphan. I have become orphaned from my spiritual children, Paul is saying. I've been come, become separated in presence, but not in heart. He loved them. He wanted to be with them, and he wanted to make that very clear. You want to have an effective and fruitful life? It begins with love that you have for other people. And if you love people, notice what the result is, what the desire is, that you want to be with them. That's why if you're a, a serving in a ministry, if you're, you're serving the Lord, you know what you should have a natural desire for? If you love the Lord and you love to please the Lord, you know what the natural desire is? That you want to be with his people. No one should have to incentivize you to be with the people. <laughs> You can't say, I love the Lord, I love my calling, or I love my gift. I love seeing the Lord use me. But you don't love the people that you're ministering to. It shows a shallow style of ministry that you're just in love with a performance or a showcasing of your gift. It's not about you. God does the work in spite of you, not because of you. So he says, I love the people, so I wanted to be with them. It, it always frustrates me when people say, you know, I want to be used by God. Give me opportunity. Look, would you just open some doors? But they don't want to be with the people. <laughs> Ministry is people. 
That's what ministry is. He says, I may have been out of sight, but you were not out of mind. I loved you with my heart deeply. I cared for you. I still care for you. In fact, this is the heart of a shepherd that's close to the heart of the shepherd, Jesus Christ. He's showing his love, his affection to them. And notice what he demonstrates this in verse 17 now. He says, I might not have been with you in presence, but you were in my heart. And there's two things. I endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. I I want you to look at that verse. It is packed with meaning there. What is he saying? I endeavored. There was effort. You love someone, you know what you're going to do when it comes to a relationship? You're going to put in some efforts. I, endeavor means you're working hard. You're putting in some time. You're, you're doing some sacrifices. It, it requires endeavoring. It requires time, sacrifice, attention. But not only did I sacrifice, put in the work and time. Notice, in the relationship that I had for you, I, I did it here. Notice, in, in an attitude or with a mindset, endeavoring more eagerly. What does this mean? I, I, I demonstrated effort with Eagerness. What's another word for eagerness? Urgency. You truly know when you love the people as you're serving them. Notice, if you're serving them, if you're putting in the effort, and if there's some urgency to be with them. If there's urgency. He's saying we tried very hard as much as possible with urgency to get back to you. And then finally, this, this third word in this verse that shows the heart of someone that loves people to see your face with great desire. Circle the word desire. It wasn't a job for him. It wasn't a duty for him. It wasn't a burden for him. This was his desire. You know, desire speaks of heart. This is my heart. My heart is to be with you. No one has to make me. No one has to motivate me. No one has to influence me to be with the people. If if you have to motivate someone to be with the people, then you're not really a servant. You're hireling. I tried earnestly. He's saying, I worked hard. And then eagerly, urgently, because I had a desire. I had heart to see the people, especially during affliction. You know, you can't teach someone. That's the one thing you can't teach. I don't care what Bible college you go to. You can't teach someone this, desire. You could have said you got your degree in theology. You know what they don't teach you? Desire. Passion. Compassion for people. I was concerned for you. I was concerned for your spiritual condition. It was important to me to be with you, Paul is saying. This is the way it should be in ministry, that you have a desire to be with the people, that you have a heart to be with the people, because I'll tell you this, it's very clear when your heart's not in it anymore. It is very clear when your, heart's not, when your heart's not in a relationship, when your heart's not really for the people. So he's saying, it was my desire to come and see you. I might not have been present, but in spirit and heart, I was with you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. Note this, he would say this, for though I am absent in the flesh, he tells the church of Colossae, yet I'm with you in the spirit. I have a desire to be, I just need to be there. Rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ Jesus. I have a desire to see your face, to tell of your faith. I'm there in spirit. I'm rejoicing. 
I can't wait to be with you. I can't wait to gather with you. That's the attitude that we want to have when it comes to coming together as a church. We have a desire to be at church. We're eager. We're working hard to be there. We, we want to be with the believers. This is the type of attitude that he's saying. As and if you desire to have an effective, fruitful life in ministry, the motivation begins with you loving the people. I loved you. But also, number two, you must understand the enemy. And not, not the enemy. I want you to make it personal, your enemy. Because as we're walking to follow Christ, notice, you have an enemy. And it says, therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Understanding your enemy is important. In fact, it is like a soldier out in battle, spiritual warfare, that understands that he or she is in a battle and has an awareness of the enemy. You think about a soldier that is there in battle and the troops are there, they're armed up. Their rifle, their boots, their uniform, a helmet, ready to go and aware of the enemy and of the enemy's tactics. They're not naive to the enemy. He's saying, I'm in this, I love you, but I understand that I have an enemy. I, I tried to come to you, even I, Paul, but the enemy hindered us. In fact, notice what he says here now. Satan hindered us. And he calls him by his name. You know that your enemy has a name? His name is Satan. His name is not your brother's name or your sister's name. The enemy is Satan. And that word Satan, you know what it means? Adversary. The devil is always coming against the church, the individual as an adversary. The enemy comes as an adversary, but how many of us can thank God that we have an advocate and his name is Jesus Christ? He said, our adversary hindered us. Now, this word there in verse 18 is an important word because it's the word hinder. It also speaks of a military term. When they would go and fight in battle two opposing armies, uh, one that would hinder the opposite army, he would go along the road, and that word hinder means to, to break up the road or to dig a trench in the road. Or what about this, to go on the road and put a roadblock for the opposite opponent or army or the enemy that would interfere. This is what the enemy wants to do. When you're doing a work for the Lord, expect this, that the enemy is going to come and put a roadblock for ministry. You're serving the Lord, there's a now trench that the enemy there dug to stop you or to hinder you. You know what it means to hinder? To advance the progress. To advance the work, he prevented us. He hindered advancement. He hindered the progress by putting a roadblock before us. And I want you to know this. It is a work of the enemy. Pay attention. It is a work of the enemy to put roadblocks in your spiritual life so that you don't progress. It is a work of the enemy to put roadblocks, trenches, Break up the road so that you don't advance in your spiritual walk. He will put something so that you don't read the Bible. He will give you a reason so that you don't pray, that you don't come to church, that you're discouraged in the ministry, that you want to give up, that you want to quit, and you find every reason. But you must recognize satanic opposition. 
It's a roadblock of the enemy. It, it, it tries to hinder the progress. Paul told the church of Corinth, for a great and effective door has opened up to me. We, we love those verses. We'll put that verse on the fridge. Look at it every day. For a great and effective door has opened up to me. But you know what he said after? But there are many adversaries. That's the reality. Many, many people that want to stop the work. Understand your enemy. Right now, whatever you're facing, understand your enemy. There are many people coming against the work. The enemy wants to get in the way. Don't be surprised. Two things that you can see there out of this verse in verse 18 that he describes is discernment to know it was attack of the enemy. And the second reason, knowing this, that he was with them three weeks only, three Sabbaths, he had taught them already to recognize Satan and to recognize spiritual warfare. So what are you supposed to do when you recognize the enemy in spiritual warfare? Ephesians 6.10. Note this today, this morning, church. Finally, my brethren, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Don't be discouraged. Strengthen yourself in his power, in his might. Put on the whole armor of God that, you won't, that you'll be able to stand against the wiles, the strategies, the tactics of the devil. The, the devil is a tactician. If he can't put a roadblock in this road, you know what he'll do? He'll try to put a roadblock in that one over there. Why? Because he believes that roadblocks will lead to setbacks. He said the, the enemy hindered our progress. For you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against the wilds of the devil, principalities, powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. Notice that. It's a spiritual battleground. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able, you have the power when you take up his armor to be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. What are you called to do? To withstand, resist, stand firm, stand strong, wearing the armor of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We have an enemy, and he tries to hinder it. Jesus said himself, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and to destroy. That's why the thief comes. That's why the enemy comes, to steal, to kill, or destroy. That's the only reason why the enemy comes. The thief doesn't go to your house because, hey, I just want to see how you were doing. I was wondering if you needed some company. I want to check in on you. The thief comes only with, with one intention in mind. It's, it's one of three things, to kill, to destroy, or to steal. That's the enemy. That's the devil. But he said, but I have come that they may have life and they have it more abundantly. Jesus came for that very reason, so that you would not be ripped off by the enemy. <laughs> you know how many people are being ripped off by the devil today because they haven't turned their life to Jesus Christ? I haven't been able to make it, but I love you, Paul is saying. Satan is at work, but I love you. In Acts chapter 20, he finally made it there. God gave him the victory to arrive at Thessalonica and all the surrounding churches. But it took some time. Now, I want you to know something as you're maybe experiencing this type of suffering or opposition or maybe roadblocks that the enemy would put there to make you stumble. Roadblocks that the enemy would put there to hinder the progress. Notice this. 
Christ promised to build his church. You right now are going through suffering as an individual. Christ promised to build his church. But you don't know what they're they're doing in the ministry that I'm serving right now. Christ has promised to build his church. You know, as a pastor in the ministry, you oftentimes see so so much warfare behind the scenes that, that people know not of. But Christ always reminds me that he promised to build his church. It's not my church. It's his church. And he will build his church. In Matthew 16, 18, he said, And I also say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In your life, that's true. Why? Because you are the church. I'm going to build you up. And the gates of Satan, the strategies of Satan will not prevail against you. You must love the people. You must understand your enemy. But number three, you must anticipate your Lord. Let's let's close with these two verses. Anticipate your Lord. Notice what it says. "For, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? What is our great motivation for everything that we do? In fact, we live in light of eternity. This is what he's saying. What is our hope, joy, and crown of rejoicing? I want you to know my motive. I want you to see my heart. I want to be transparent with you, church, he's saying. What is our hope? What does the future hold for us? Can you think about that right now as you're going through suffering? What does the future hold for us? Do we have real hope? A person who's, who's a Christian, who's born again, who believes in Jesus Christ, has a real hope because they're a child of God. You know what the hope is? A confident expectation of eternal life that you know that after you die, you're going to meet Christ in heaven. You know the purpose, the meaning of life. You have a meaning. You have a purpose. You're not, you're not just going through life and going through the motions. But, but, but if we are not in Christ, then we have no hope. We have no ground for hope. We have no type of confident expectation as to what our lives mean. So he's reminding them, notice, my motivation is this. In light of eternity, what does the future hold for us? Or what is my joy? Notice, number two, my joy. His joy is it's in Christ. It's not happiness and circumstance. His joy in suffering is Jesus, but it's also his joy that he finds, he finds it in others. I want to challenge you today that you would start to find joy in others. He's saying, you want to know what my joy is? My joy is Christ, but my joy is found in you people. I love you. My joy is in those that I've led to Jesus Christ. In fact, they're my crown of rejoicing. I love them so much. They're my proud reward. This crown it speaks of, it's not a crown of royalty. That is not what he's referring to. This is the word crown means Stephanos in the Greek, which means a crown of victory that they would give to a runner in a game. An athlete that had competed in games and was crowned the winner, he would receive this type of crown. So he's saying at the end of the race, you are my reward at the presence of Jesus. You know what he's saying? I can't wait to be with you in heaven. 
That's the heart of someone that truly loves the people. He loves them and he knows one day we're going to spend all eternity together in heaven. That's why today we should have a longing to be with one another here on earth. If you don't have a longing to be with the church on earth, then I don't know what you're going to do in heaven. We're going to be with each other for eternity. And you would say, well, you know what? I just get so annoyed. You know, they took my seat, that brother. I can't believe he took my seat. I sit in that place. I've been sitting there for 30 years. That's not going to matter. We were worshiping the Lord here. But one day, all together with the greater body of Christ in the kingdom of God, we will be worshiping the Lord together in heaven. He would say this in verse 19. In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. He's looking forward to the accumulated impact in the life of others that he had led to the presence of the Lord, his commitment to the people, his faithfulness to the people in the presence of the Lord. That word presence, it's the word now perusia, which means coming. It's a term that speaks of the end time events, eschatology, not referring to the second coming, pay attention to this, but referring to his coming for his church. He's, how do we know that? Because he's speaking to the church. When he comes for his church, I can't wait, Paul is saying, till he comes for us, we're going to be together forever. His mind was on eternal things that we're going to spend eternity together in heaven. When, when he comes, we'll stand together before the presence of the Lord as a church. And you'll be my reward. God knows my motives, and you'll be my reward. You know, when we get to heaven, after we're raptured up, there's going to be a award ceremony. It's called the Bema Seat. And that means that every work that you ever did for Christ is going to put and be tried in the fire to see the true motivation of what you did, whether it was for yourself or for God. And there you'll receive rewards for that which you did for him at the Bema Seat of Christ. You will have to give an answer and be held accountable to your works, to your motives. It speaks of it in Revelation. In fact, turn there. As we close this morning, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Because as he closes this, he's telling them, for you are our glory and our joy. In spite of persecution, you are my glory, you are my joy. I, I value you, you. In the face of persecution and satanic opposition, he's looking ahead. Notice, he's looking ahead, he's rejoicing by faith, that he sees his friends in the presence of Jesus Christ in glory. That he sees his friends in the presence of Christ in glory. He is rejoicing in that. You are what is means so much to me. In fact, Revelations 22, verse 12. I want you to read verse 12 with me out loud. I'll read the rest to you. Verse 12, it says this. Together we say, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his word. He's coming quickly, notice. This is the message of Jesus for us. Behold, pay attention. Listen up here, I'm coming quickly. I have a reward. 
You're going to be rewarded according to your works. To have everyone according to his work. Notice I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. Pay attention to this. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Notice that you would be able to partake of eternal life. And notice, and it may enter through the gates into the city. I love that. There's going to be a city, the New Jerusalem. It's going to have gates, and the gates are going to open wide if we receive Christ because those that have heavenly citizenship belong to that city. If you've been born again, you have now a new citizenship. It's a heavenly one that you can then walk in through those gates. But verse 15, but the outside of the city are the dogs, unclean, sorcerers, given to rebellion, Pharmacia, drugs, witchcraft, it would imply sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie, hypocrisy. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Notice, this is for the church. This is for you. I'm the root and the offspring of David, Jesus Christ, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Notice, the spirit is saying, come. Let him who hears, if you're hearing today, come. Let him who thirsts, come. And, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. He who thirsts, he who hears, and he who desires. What is the invitation? It's a free invitation. It's to come and drink of the living water. What is the water? Jesus Christ. Here you have an invitation to come and drink freely of Christ Jesus, that you would come so that you would be able to walk into the city through those gates and partake of eternal life. You see, there's a very specific exhortation as, as Paul would have ended it with their mind. Notice he shifted their mind now from earthly to heavenly. They're going through suffering and they started talking about suffering. Now they're talking about the coming of Jesus. Do you see what's more important? You see what you can hold on to? Somebody after first service said, I need you to pray for me because my dad just died. I'm not doing good. And my family member is sick. They're not doing good. And I need something to hold on to. And notice what I can hold on to is that Jesus is coming for me. That's what we can hold on to today. You know what he's telling the Thessalonians? I want you to find strength in this. I want you to find strength in his coming. Don't just say Maranatha. Are you ready? Find strength in the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.